0: It'll be from 1 John chapter 4. If you'll go ahead and open there with me. 1 John chapter 4. Our passage today will be just verses 13 through 16. We'll read a little more. I'm tempted to read a lot more, but I know that's, uh, we've done it enough times each week that it's hard. Our passage starts off with, by this we know, yet again, it's an important teaching that John has for us, and by this we know that we abide with him and he in us, because he's given us his spirit. It carries us back to chapter 3, verse 24, which says, hereby we know that he abides with us by the spirit he's given us, and the spirit is what we will be looking at again today in our message, in our text. We are reminded of the scope and design that this is all one big passage, one big thought from the end of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 4 and even into chapter 5. The breaks we have are not always that distinct because he runs along building on his theme and on his teaching. But how do we know? What spirit has God given us? It raises another question, which he begins the chapter four with. Every spirit is not to be believed. They should be tested first. And what are the tests? But is the spirit from God? Is it not from God? How do you distinguish that really by whether the spirit confesses Christ or not? When we talked about that, we talked about how there is, yes, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the Antichrist, but there is also the spirit of man, the one in us, our spirit. Not just the Holy Spirit in us or the Antichrist in us, but we have our own soul that speaks. And so we're connecting all of these passages together, starting back in chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4. And he's summarizing really the whole book. He's starting to wrap things up. And doing so uh, distinctly, and he's connecting these ideas. What is the test? How do we try these spirits to know whether which one is the spirit of God and which one is the spirit of the Antichrist? By confessing that Christ has come in the flesh and by loving our brother who is of God. Verses 2 through 6 and 7 through 12 of our chapter. We'll be picking up at verse 13. So now he connects these two back and he brings us back again to the beginning of these arguments. So I wanted to give you that little summary before we read. We'll start reading at verse 13. I'm sorry, at verse 7. Although we'll be starting our examination at verse 13. So First John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Beloved, let us one love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might, through him, so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he abides in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is in us, because he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the encouraging words from from your word that we may know that we abide in you that we may know that we have eternal life. And we pray, Lord, as we consider these things this morning, that you would lift up our hearts and fill us with grace as we consider your love for us and your spirit in us and how we abide in each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned already, by this we know uh, it's an important topic for us. We must know that we abide in him and he abides in us. Our abiding in him has been a key theme in John. We either abide in him or we don't. We either belong to him or we don't. There are only two kingdoms in the world. There's no middle ground. They are at war. We have learned in Colossians 1, 13, and 14 that he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are now part of his kingdom. We, we are abiding in him, in his kingdom, in life with him, as opposed to life with the world, life as children of the devil. And so this abiding has to do with where we are living our lives where we are existing with God or with the devil now it's usually linked to our love for God if you love me you will keep my commandments Jesus said in John 14:15 and in the next chapter John 15:10 he said if you keep my commandments You will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And so obedience and abiding go hand in hand. in our love for God, if we love God, we obey God, and we abide with God. If we love God, we abide with God, and we obey God. You can say it either way. Our obedience is rather closely linked. And when you look at 1 John... John has made this point very forcefully, has he not? Uh, 1 John 2, chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever ab- says he abides with him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Chapter two, seventeen: The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and abide in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And so what we have heard, the teachings of God's word, if, they, if we hear them, if, meaning we put them into practice, then they abide in us, and if they abide in us, we abide with God. So the obedience is very much tied to our abiding in God. 1 John chapter 3 verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. The one who keeps on sinning has neither seen him nor known him. And so again, our obedience is linked to our place with God. Whoever keeps his commandment, 1 John 3:24, abides in God, and God in him. By this that we know, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. And so our obedience is evidence of our abiding in God. But we know we abide in him again by the spirit, which ties into the passage we're looking at this morning. The Holy Spirit, but that's been mentioned before. Although a bit circumspectly. First John two twenty seven, the anointing that you received from him abides in you, then you have no need that anyone should teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. That anointing, probably referring to the Spirit of God that has been given to the believer. And in chapter 3, verse 9, no one born of God makes the practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Of course, there's also the link of obedience to a specific commandment, obedience, and that's the commandment of brotherly love. Chapter 2, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and God is light, and walking with God is walking in the light. And so loving your brother, abiding in the light, really means abiding in God. Uh, Back in chapter one, if we walk in the light, right, he is light. We have fellowship with one another. And so there's a link. The specific commandment to love our brother is included in this. And I go through all of this because this is really the core of what we want to talk about in the Christian faith. Right? The, the Christian faith is really about reconciliation with God. The Christian faith is about you know, avoiding the penalty for our sin, which is uh, the wages of sin is death, death meaning here, not just physical death, but the second death being cast into the lake of fire, eternal torment, suffering in hell for all eternity. And avoiding that can only be done through the gift of God, through reconciliation with God, through the blood of his son, through, as we read earlier in chapter 4, through Jesus being a propitiation for our sins. And people really wrestle with that. Does God really love me? Am I really with God? We talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about the love of God people are confused by the worldly view of love, which says love is a reciprocal feeling. You know, I see the cute little kitten playing, and I think, oh, I love the kitten. And somebody does this for me, and oh, I love what they did for me, so I love them. And they think God must love me the same way. I do these things for God, and God loves me. I stumble in sin, God doesn't love me anymore. And they wrestle with the whole concept of assurance of faith, and assurance of salvation. And John tackles that issue, both in his gospel and here, wanting us to know whether or not we abide in Christ, in God. And we can know this. So that's a big deal in John. And there are many things he says we can know. He says, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, By this we know that we have come to know him, him being God. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So if we are keeping his commandments, it is evidence of our knowing God. Note that it is not the cause of our knowing God. We obey the commandments and then we come to know God. That's not what it says. If we keep his commandments then we know that we have come to know him already. Uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Uh, verse 24 of chapter 3 of 1 John. Whoever keeps his commandments abide in God, abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, the Spirit whom he has given us. We'll be looking at the Spirit in more detail later in the message today, in the passage today. But by the Spirit, chapter 4, verse 6, we are from God and whoever whoever knows God listens to us, us here being the apostles, the scriptures. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. So we know who we should be listening to by whether or not they speak from God and whether they listen to Scripture. If they're not following Scripture, then we shouldn't be listening. They're not the spirit of truth. They're the spirit of error, spirit of this world, the spirit of the Antichrist. And in chapter 5, which Lord willing, we'll get to in a couple of weeks, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments, that's an interesting one, but I won't talk about it today. We'll talk about it when we get there. We love our brothers by obeying God. Of course, John summarizes and wraps it all up in 1 John 5:13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I these things that he's telling us that we may know, the tests that he's giving, and the the examples that he's giving us that we may know by considering these matters, they're all given to us so that we may know that we have eternal life. Now those who tell you you can never know, they don't understand Scripture. I remember a pastor telling me that a woman who had been going to his church for a long time, had left and was going to an Orthodox Christian church. Not Orthodox Presbyterian, but Eastern Orthodox. And she died, and he went to the funeral. And I don't know what they call the pastor there, but he, in his funeral, offered absolutely no hope for her soul. Because there was no way to know whether God was accepting her or not. In his theology, because he couldn't know, but we can know. John says, I wrote these things for you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. And guess what? In his gospel, the gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he tells us why he wrote it. And he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose in the gospel and in this epistle is so that we may know Christ, that we may have life in his name, and that we may know we have life in his name. Now the tests John applies, gives us, are not easy, and they're very distorted. And John warns us that there are those who are trying to deceive us who will corrupt and pervert them. And we need to be weary of that, wary of that. But the primary reason he's given us in this passage today, in the first verse, verse 13, is, we know by his giving us the Holy Spirit. Paul in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit being given to us is a seal, a guarantee of what is to come. Not a hope, not a not a hope in the worldly sense of, I hope I win, I hope it doesn't snow, I hope it's a nice day, I hope my headache gets away or my Parkinson's gets better. No, it's it's a certainty, an absolute certainty here, the promise, a guarantee of the inheritance we will possess, and that's why he warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter four verse thirty. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? In the book of Ephesians, by sin, which is what John has been talking about. You don't sin if you belong to God. You don't have a life of sin. So having the Holy Spirit is how we know that we are in Christ. But really, how do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? Hmm... Tough question, but that's the next verse. Verses 14 and 15. Our confession, or perhaps I should say our profession, is how we know. What we have seen and what we testify concerning Jesus is how he starts off, verse 14. Now, some people take this to be, we have seen and testify, that's the apostle speaking again as he did back in, the beginning, of the very first verse of the book. From that which from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched, concerning the word of life, John is speaking as an apostle. Those are the things he's going to write us about. Uh, some think that's what he's referring to. This is, you know, the apostle is telling us something. But I think when we look at the context here a little better, I think it's what we, the believer, have seen and testify about Jesus, about our salvation and back in chapter 3 verse 22 and 23 whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments do so it pleases him and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of the son of his son Jesus Christ and we love one another just as he commanded us i think our faith in Jesus Christ is what he's talking about and what God does for us through that faith in Christ And in chapter 4, the beginning, verses 1 through 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now in the world already. And so... I think what we are talking about here, testifying that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, I think this is about our witness. How do we know we have the Holy Spirit? Because we are testifying that Christ has come, and we have faith in him and in that. Right, Romans 10:9 and following. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between the Jews and the Greeks. Now this is talking about him being Savior of the whole world. There's no distinction between the Jews and the Greeks. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord... Will be saved. So I think this verse is starting off telling us that this is about our testimony. How do we know that the Holy Spirit has been put in us? That we abide in—we know we abide in God if we have His Spirit. Okay, great. But how do we know we have His Spirit? Well, by our testimony, by our faith something we should already be, always be ready to testify about, be a witness about, as we we're talking about in our afternoon Bible study, 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. We testify that he is Savior of the world and the Son of God. And that is now we know God's spirit is in us. Now, we talked about last week or two or three weeks ago. What does it mean to testify that that is true? The demon said that he was the son of God. The demon said that those things, they knew that. It means more than just that, which is why John has linked it so very carefully to our obedience, because that is a sure sign That we believe those things because we change our life and we have a new life in Christ. We are being transformed by the gospel, not just repeating words. We testify that he is savior of the world. I hinted at this already, the Jew and the Greek. Sometimes people misrepresent the word world here and in other places uh, to mean every individual but I think those are the ones he was writing about back in chapter 2, verse 26, those trying to deceive you. Uh, Heretical teachers and false prophets make him the savior of every individual equally, but that's not what Jesus teaches. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus says, to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And he explains what that means down in verse 46 of chapter 25 of Matthew. They go away to eternal punishment. If Jesus himself is going to send people to eternal punishment, to the fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, then obviously he has not saved them. He has not done anything for them. That would be a misrepresentation. I think Jesus here is making that clear distinction again between... His people, his sheep, and those who are not his sheep. Remember in John chapter 10, verse 24 and following, the Jews were gathering around him and saying, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answers them, I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus, throughout his whole ministry, made a big distinction. There are those who belong to me. They are my sheep. They will hear me. They will obey me. They will follow me, and I will save them, and I will give them eternal life. And you who are not my sheep do not believe. Separate and distinct. Unmixed. The Jews were confused, and they thought they were God's sheep, and everybody else was not. Uh, That was never God's intention. You remember in Exodus 19, we've read this before, there's a promise in verse 5 and 6 of Exodus 19. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people, for the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. They were to be a kingdom of priests, meaning they were to be priests for the rest of the world, for all the people. But they were unworthy because they refused to obey. The next thing they did was make a golden calf, called it Yahweh, and tried to go back to Egypt to the land of slavery that God had saved them from. Now the world here is the mystery Paul talks about in Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, he, said you can, he says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the Gentiles become fellow heirs with the Jews, members of the same body the Jews are currently members of, the believing Jews, and partakers of the same promises made to the Jews. There's no distinction. The full-blown dispensationalists want to make a distinction to this day, but Paul says there is none. And that's what he means by the world. It's not just the Jews, but it's the people from every nation, kindred, and tribe, every tongue. They are all being reached by God. Not every individual, but every kind. The whole world. The Jews, being fully persuaded that it was only them and that everybody else was unclean and despicable, just showed that they were confused and didn't understand. They had corrupted the teaching of God, they had followed those who were trying to deceive them and hadn't listened to the word. But we testify that God is the savior of the world, of all people from all over the world, all different kinds of people from every nation, every race, every language. There is no distinction, which is why racism is a sin Nationalism is a sin when it comes to the church. God, he says, abides in us and we in him. Because we testify that he is the savior of the world. How does God abide in us, you might wonder? Well, verse 13 says it explicitly, because he has given us his spirit. What does that mean? Well, if we go to Titus chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 3 through 8 because I want us to get the context here. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, This is the love we're talking about in our passage today. When the love of God appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, and here's what I want you to focus on, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Notice, believing in God should result in us being devoted to then doing good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, he says. So how does God abide in us? By regeneration through the Holy Spirit who's poured out on us in Christ. This goes back to the Ephesians 36 passage that I always read concerning being born again. And he put, takes out a heart of stone, gives us a, a new heart, a heart of flesh, Puts a new spirit in us, and having put his spirit in us, he causes us to walk according to his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Ephesians 36, 25 through 27. He has put his spirit in us through regenerating us, through washing us, through cleansing us of all of our sin and renewing us in the spirit of God. And his spirit then is in us. We, of course, not only have the Spirit abiding in us, but we then abide in God. And that's Paul, or John, yeah, Jesus' point in John 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's giving us an example so that we can understand it. It says, abide in me and I in you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. (coughs) If we are not abiding in God, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. If we are not abiding in him, we really are not part of his kingdom. We are not one of his children. We are not in him. And he makes this very clear when he says, anyone... Who does not abide in me is thrown away like the branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. We must be abiding in God. And to abide in God, we must have his spirit, Holy Spirit, abiding in us. And to have his spirit abiding in us, he must have regenerated us, taken out our heart of stone, given us a heart of flesh and put his spirit in us so that we may be regenerated be washed, be cleansed of our sins. John has stressed extensively before coming to this point that God, that abiding in God requires us to be living a new life in God, a new life in Christ. Uh, one of the key passages for this is 1 John 2, 4-6. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. This we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. And so if we abide in God, if we have his Holy Spirit regenerating us, we will walk in the way in which Jesus walked. Self-evident. Take out the heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh, give us his spirit, cause us to walk according to his statutes. That is our regeneration. We are made new again in Christ. The result of that is a new life in Christ. And then looking at that new life, we confess that Jesus is Lord. We confess that he has come in the flesh. We worship him. That shows us that the spirit has been put in us, which shows us that we have been regenerated, which shows us that we are abiding in God And our obedience shows us that we really are abiding in him and him in us. And thus we may know and we may believe. Verse 16, that way we have come to know and come to believe the love that God has for us. We're not talking about just knowing the mere facts. And we looked at this last week, so since I'm running long, I won't talk about it much. We spoke about it at length. He sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin, to die in the place for our sins, even though he, that was his love for us in that he was willing to sacrifice his own son for us. And of course, we saw the love of his son that he was willing to set aside his place in heaven, his throne, come to earth, live a very difficult life, rejected, scorned, abused, and eventually murdered And not only that, but taking upon himself our sins, enduring the full wrath of God due for our sins upon himself, being our propitiation, as we saw last week. That was how they showed love. And if we have that to our advantage, if our sins have been blotted out, they've been nailed to the cross with Christ, his righteous life has been given to us, we see that, that is how we see God's love. That is how we know God's love. We considered it last week. It is not because we got all our ticket, all our, all the holes punched on our ticket and we're good to go and we can ride the train to heaven. God did not love us because we made him happy. He loved us while we were yet sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, sending his son to die for our sins. That was how he loved us. And God is love, he says here. Abiding in love is abiding in God. Now we saw last week that God is love, the love of holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, not the love of sin, corruption, and evil, etc. We made a big distinction last week between the children of God and the children of devil, the love of sin, and the love of righteousness. I remember 1 John 3, 9 and 10 No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, for he has been born of God. By this is it evident, who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. God is love of of good, and if we love what is good and what is right and what is holy and love what is lovable in his word and love the brothers because we are made in the image of God, renewed in the image of God, then we can understand this passage. God is love. If we abide in love, we abide in God. And thus we can know how we abide in God, by our love. If we love one another, God abides in us. First John 4.12 Notice it doesn't say, if we love one another, God will abide in us. It says, if we love one another, God abides in us. In other words, he already does, and by that we can know that he is abiding in us. We'll look at this in a couple of weeks, but 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. If we abide in love. It means we abide in obedience to God and not just in grudging obedience. We all did that with our parents, right? I don't want to get beat, so I'm going to obey. Uh, No, his commandments are not burdensome. The commandment is good. It is a guide for my life. It is life and health and joy and happiness. And I want to obey. Even if I wanted to disobey before, now that I read it, I want to do it because that will be good for me. That is the idea. And if we love God, that means we love His commandments and we love His people. And that is an evidence to us that we have the Spirit of God in us and that we are abiding in God. And abiding in God means being saved, having eternal life. And so that's what He's been driving at here. And that's what He's been driving at through this whole book. How do we know that we are saved? by our love for God and for the brethren, true love, biblical love. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you chose to love us even though we were unlovable, that you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins, that He took the debt that we owed, the price for our sin that we could never pay, The price of, for us would have been eternal suffering in hell. And he willingly paid it, appeasing your wrath, paying the just penalty for our sin. And more than that, he lived the life that we did not, earning for himself eternal life, which he shares with us. And in that, Lord, we see your love, your amazing love, your wondrous love, That though we were enemies and sinners, you sent him to die for us that we might have eternal life. And Lord, seeing that, understanding that, knowing that, believing that, living that, and loving you and loving our brothers, we can see that we have indeed been transformed by the Holy Spirit. We have been regenerated by the Spirit, and that shows us, Lord the great truth and the great joy and the great hope that we abide in you and he abides in us and that we will be with you for eternity. And pray that you would encourage us always to be diligent in our obedience to you as we seek to rejoice in you and to give you the grounds to rejoice in us by living our life for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.